Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I am now recording from my Bali courtyard. That's why you will hear dogs barking in the background <laughs> and some machine tools. Uh, you know, all the common sound in uh, rural Indonesia. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, my, cause my, uh, after my, my wife got pregnant, she kicked out the dogs from the house. So they, they are now staying in the yard. And so I just moved into the yard to, to stay with them. Uh, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but well, actually, welcome to the show, my uh, guest, long returning repeat guest, um, Mr. David Emilia, all the way from uh, the remote border town of Mangsi, Yunnan, near the border, uh, on the Chinese border near Myanmar. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the show, Davide. Ah, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Oh, it was always great to have you on. Yeah. Um, and you are such a subject matter expert in this remote area of China. I mean, you uh, are like on the southwest corner, right? Like this very little visited area of China, not even by domestic Chinese tourists. I, I visit you there last in 2019, like for the very yeah. first time in my life. <laughs> well, we had a blast for the water festival. Yeah, it was um, good. And, I, and, you know, this area actually is very intimately tied with, uh, caught up with the, the, the relationship between China and Myanmar because it's right on the border. And, yeah. and right now, Myanmar is in the news again because, uh, you know, the, the recent coup. So there's, there will be a lot to talk about. But I have, prior to this, I had wanted to co- bring you to the show for a long time to talk about the infamous Golden Triangle, the, the area of northern Myanmar that's on the border uh, with China, Laos, and Thailand. And, and this area is infamous because it was one time the world's largest production base of opium and heroin oh i mean in very recent history and and this go ahead well the opium the opium was grown um in shan and kachin states which are so like derhong prefecture where i live is on the border with shan state and the uh, prefecture over baoshan prefecture is on the border with kachin state and so, so for people who are not familiar with the geography in this part of the world, uh, so in northern Myanmar, uh, northern Myanmar is a patchwork of different ethnicities, and and the largest uh, region in northern Myanmar is Kachin State and the San State, which both border China, and the Kachin. Uh, state is named for the ethnic group Kachin, and the San state is named for the ethnic group, group, group San. But but this is a name I believe the the Bar the Burmese people call these people. I, they they have their own, own names, uh, and uh, you know Kachin would be called Jinpo inside China. Uh, and, that's and San. Go ahead. Um. Well, th- you've got you've got the um the Shan and the Kachin people now. The Kachin people, their name for themselves is Jingpo Wunpong, which means Jingpo Union. 
Um, the Jingpua people are a uh, like a confederacy, a long-standing confederacy of five different people. That is the Jingpua, uh, the uh, Lisu, um, and there's three others. But um, basically, yeah, they are a long-standing tribal yeah. confederacy. They they get uh, put together as Kachin people in um, Myanmar, and yeah. the Shan people similarly. Their name for themselves in their own language is Dai Dai people, um, and that's what they're known inside China, right? By their own self-ethnic name. Well, um, so, um, yeah, there's there's different there's different um, geographical subgroups, but overall they know themselves as the Dai people. Um, so you've got Derhong Dai, Shishuang Bana Dai, and so on. This is like a a geographical um, identifier, but also yeah. historically speaking, uh, this part of Yunnan and uh, northern Myanmar was dominated by <clears throat> uh, Dai peoples, kingdoms, principalities. Um, the Dai people at one point even had an empire which ruled over most of Yunnan. So, yeah. I mean, the the it's the the area of northern Myanmar or to this day, right? It's it's a uh, uh, there's the the the, the the Thai-speaking people, they uh, there was a large-scale migration of Thai-speaking people from southwestern China uh, over a thousand years ago. Oh yeah, uh, to to over all over Southeast Asia. You know, some of them made it as far as Thailand. You know, that's where they founded Siam and later modern-day Thailand. Some of them made it to northern Myanmar and pushed further west to. Um, North, what is now Northeast India, right? The the kingdom, the Assam, was the kingdom of Ahom, and an Ahom kingdom was founded by Thai speaking people. But they they you know adopted Hinduism and uh, you know and and uh, incorporate a lot of the Indian culture once they they reached that area. And and but what, what I want to talk about today is kind of the history of this region. And how it became uh, developed, how it de- became developed with the help of CIA, <laughs> became the world's uh, top most uh, opium and heroin pro- uh, producing region before this, that title was overtaken by Afghanistan under NATO occupation. Yeah. And, and which is also, <laughs> you know, has, has US finger in it. So, yeah. but, but this is a very little known. History, you know, people, you know, a lot of people may know about Golden Triangle and know about the drugs, but a lot of people don't know how uh, how that history developed because this the opium it was actually not indigenous to this region, right? As you mentioned, so so we're gonna go back from the beginning. We're, we're gonna give you the whole rundown and 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 to the modern day Myanmar and how that. Um, ties into the current political landscape of Myanmar and and, and the current struggles. So um, to help me, we have Davide, <laughs> who has been living 
in Mangsu for how many years now, David? Um, on and off, I've been living here. This is the tenth year I've been here. Mm. Um, yeah. I've I've lived here this year. It will be seven years. But so in in the last ten years, I've been living here for seven years. Basically, I've I've gone back to Australia to um, you know go to my my grandfather's funeral. Um, <laughs> um, go to my mother's 60th birthday, this kind of thing. But for, for the most part, I've been living and working here uh, for the past oh, 10 yeah. years. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, my bad as a host. I forgot to introduce you for the people who may have joined the, uh, the <laughs> subscriber base of Silk and Steel more recently. Yeah. So Davide is Australian from... Um, Perth. Perth, Australia, and you came to China uh, initially to teach English at the De Hong Teachers College. Uh, yeah. That's where you made a lot of local contact, and then you stay. Now, now you are married, you are settled there, and yeah. you have lived there many, many years, and you have many contacts both inside Yunnan, China, but also across the border in northern Myanmar. So that's yeah. that's why you bring a very interesting perspective into this discussion um so i wanted to and uh, originally when we uh, were planning the show i said i was going to start with you know around the 1949 at the end of the chinese civil war when the kmt got kicked out of china and and a, a portion of remnant kmt escaped to northern myanmar uh, but you you wanted to actually go even further to the history how opium production was introduced to this region, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, historically, of course, from the Silk Road and so well, like opium has been known to Chinese civilization for a very long time. Um, it's mentioned in certain famous um, Chinese traditional Chinese medicine treatises and so on. Um, but it's always imported. It wasn't natively. Yeah, no, it China. wasn't. Um, uh, the Dutch, the Dutch actually, um, um, well, actually, it started with the Portuguese. The Portuguese started like this is like you know your large scale um, importation. First, you had the actually, actually, Sorry. yes, the Colombian exchange play a large part because um, the gateway drug to opium was actually. Um, tobacco <laughs> because because traditionally uh, when opium in, was imported to china uh, people took it um orally uh, as medicine yeah right? totally or well, they dissolved it in vinegar and wine and stuff like that yeah so you, you can't actually ingest too much opium orally because that will kill you <laughs> people actually take opium like in large doses as a painless way to commit suicide well especially that especially if you're dissolving it in in alcohol because both of those are central nervous systems central nervous system depressants and uh, both of them will uh, basically depress your breathing and slow your heart rate Um, and if you mix too much and you um, ingest that orally yeah, that's that's a pretty good way to well die, you know. Yeah. But so you... in in, chi- in traditional Chinese medicine, opium was always taken in very small portions 
for its medicinal uh, yeah. value. As, of, as a cough uh, suppressant or whatever, yes. yeah. Yes, so, so it's never meant to be large, taking large quantity. But what happened with the Colombian exchange was the Portuguese and the, the Spanish, they introduced tobaccos from the Americas to Southeast Asia, where it's been picked up by, by the Chinese migrants in the region, because there's a, the Chinese have a large trading network all throughout Southeast Asia for hundreds of years. And so then they, these Chinese merchants then brought this new crop back from uh, Southeast Asia to Chinese mainland, where the, the smoking habit uh, spread. And then the Portuguese, uh, it's either Portuguese or Dutch, they invented the way to basically roll the opium into balls. Yes, so you can smoke it. So you, like that kind of revolutionized the opium consumption patterns because whereas before, if you take too much opium orally, you will die. Now you can, you know, quote unquote, safely smoke away. Well, <laughs> well it was good. it was about fifteen hundred. Um, the Portuguese, um, but basically started um, opium smoking around that time. Um, and then um, they actually started getting opium into um, Indian opium, by the way, um, like. Uh, opium, the opium growing areas in India were Bengal and Bihar, and uh, the Portuguese started shipping it into China through, Mac- you know, Macau. Macau's been a uh, Portuguese, well, it was controlled by the Portuguese for a long yeah. time, and that was their their routes into China through Macau. And that was that was the 1600s. Um, so along with uh, tobacco was also um, opium. Like they kind of, as you say, they kind of went together as a drug of, a recreational drug. Ah, but it says, um, from what I can tell, the Dutch were the ones who, who introduced, oh, here, here's a tobacco pipe. You can, you can roll it up in a ball. You can roll your opium up in a ball, put it in with some tobacco and smoke it through a pipe the same way you already smoke tobacco. It was the Dutch who did that about a hundred years later, around um, seventeen hundred. Yeah, so that's when the Dutch came in. Uh, they took advantage because after the the Dutch, uh, this was a time when, uh, you know, because the Portuguese uh, crisis, uh, success, a uh, crisis of succession, because the Portuguese king foolishly led an expedition into North Africa and get himself killed. And the Spain basically annexed uh, Portugal, and and then during that time, uh, Dutch was fighting a war against Spain for their own independence, uh, and uh, the, so the Dutch then would also wage a war on all the um, all the colonial position of the Spanish crown, including the former Portuguese colonies. So that so we're talking about Malacca. Right, yeah. uh, and and uh, and Indo- and parts of Indonesia, and so they so so the Dutch came, they kicked out the uh, the the Portuguese from Malacca, they took out took over the Spice Islands, uh, and that they, they established eventually established foothold in um, on the Java Island. They established uh, Fort Batavia, which would later develop in today's Jakarta. 
and 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 so so while Dutch it was establishing its colonial empire in what what then was called the Dutch East Indies, uh, mm. they took over the opium trade. Yeah. yeah, that was that was around seventeen hundred. Um, they th- this is opium from India, and it wasn't just going to China; it was also going to the islands of Southeast Asia, as you say, you know, like Malacca, um, Batavia. I'm not sure offhand if this is true or not, but at the time, Batavia was one of the biggest or the biggest uh, commercial centers in the world as far yeah. as sheer volume of imports and exports and money that was passed was through there. Outside, in the world, is outside of uh, mainland China and Japan, because <laughs> back then, <laughs> you know the you know the, the sheer volume of trade within China is huge, but but for the value outside of China, in terms of European dominated trade, the Pavia was one of yeah one of the largest. And this is this is something um like okay, so we'll go from the Dutch. Now this is around seventeen hundred. The Dutch started mass exporting opium from India around Southeast Asia, including China. Um, and in 1729, uh, the Yongzheng Emperor, um, he, he ruled from 1678 to 1735. Toward the end of his time as emperor in 1729, he prohibited the smoking of opium. Uh, he also prohibited the sale of opium. Um, and at that time, so so basically, you had a prohibition of opium. In, yeah, because it was, uh, China you, at, at, around that time, you know, even this was at the height of the Qin Dynasty power in China, the so-called I Qin. The opium consumption already became a problem among the upper class uh, elite because you know people took it uh, took on as a kind of a, a, a luxury. Um, Consumption, basically, uh, you know, like it's like uh, uh, it's like now, just like how rich people now do coke, right? <laughs> Back then, <laughs> rich Chinese gentlemen they did, did opium. Yeah, but but Yongzhen. Oh, yeah. um, so the, the the side effect of opium by by then was already well established and well known. So, well, so that's was, why the, you, it had been ahead. in the Chinese pharmacopoeia for a, a, a very long time, maybe over a thousand years. So they knew, yeah, this shit is powerful. If you take too much, you will stop breathing and you will die. Like, as you say, like, yeah, they, they knew what it did. Like, they weren't ignorant about the effects that um, opium could have on people's physiology, for sure. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but, but as, as a consumption, this was a new, new pattern of uh, kind of elite consumption you know when when the opium became smokable, right? In this, in when we can be smoked through pipes, uh, and that kind of widened its uh, its base. You know, it evolved from like a traditional Chinese medicine to actually uh, consumable goods. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> drug of recreation. And, I mean, and it, it, go ahead. I was going to say there's a lot of things in the Chinese pharmacopoeia which. You know, like they, they, you know, like opium was in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. Um, uh, cannabis was in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. However, 
the recreational use of these drugs was always um, indicted, not prohibited, but indicted. Like it was seen as being a very um, low class sort of thing. At times, opium opium became quite fashionable. Um, cannabis never did become fashionable as a drug of uh, abuse or uh, recreation in China at all. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one part of it uh, in the beginning, it was uh, it was a recreational drug for the elite, also because it was expensive. Exactly. Imported, right. So it's like. Uh, uh, you know, it's like doing coke, right? And then, and then um, but what the British did later, though, yeah. is they, they started to industrial farming opium, and 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 they could produce opium in such an industrial scale after the British took over India as a colony that they dominated the trade, and then they make it, they they depress the opium price to the point where. Everyone uh, could get high, yeah. Yeah, it can be afford. It, it became affordable to even the common laborers, and then British actually wage an active campaign of drug pushing inside China. They work with like the drug dealers inside China to promote their drugs, you know, as as safe and uh, and cheap, reliable, <laughs> and and so they they spend years cultivating like the drug market inside China until they basically that became the number one cash crop of the British Empire because yeah well yeah. um I'd, I'd like to go into that a little bit now um so okay. in 1729 um uh Yuan Zhong um he uh sorry hang on a second um it's okay Yong Zheng Yongzheng Emperor um, banned uh, opium consumption or opium sale in China, except under license for use as medicine. So it was pretty much the exact same uh, situation as prohibition in the US with alcohol. Like, you needed to have a a medicinal license. And so... There was a lot of ways around this edict prohibiting its smoking or its sale. However, that that edict still did do a lot to reduce its use um, in China. Okay, uh, and then in uh, seventeen, hang on, seventeen fifty. In that year, the British East India Company took over Bengal and Bihar. So they were like the big opium-growing um, areas in India. Um, and in that year, the British started mass selling it from Calcutta to their port in Calcutta to China. And then by... And I like to interject and, and remind people the reason, uh, you know, Dutch and British all wanted to sell opium to China is because at this time in... Uh, in eighteen, in late seventeen hundreds and, uh, and early eighteen hundreds, China was the world's largest economy. Uh, you know, even oh, as yeah. late as yeah, even as late as eighteen thirties, uh, just on the eve of Opium War, China produced like thirty three percent 
of the world's industrial output. Uh, I mean, like it was China was was uh, Chinese economy was gigantic back then. So that's why all these Europeans, since Marco Polo and and Columbus, are trying to to find their way to China. To to win, yeah. Yes, and 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 but the best way they found to make money in China was through drugs. <laughs> that's what they well. Did. A big a big issue for the for the European colonialists was um, China wanted or needed very little from them. Um, the main the main thing that the Chinese wanted from other countries was silver, because silver at that time was the reserve metal of Chinese um, currency. It was Chinese like, currency. It was, China, it was, yeah, China was a silver-based uh, currency economy. And and yeah. the reason also China didn't need it very little from from outside world, because China itself it was a huge continental-sized economy. Uh, you, you already produce everything you need. And yeah. this was always a time before, I emphasize, before industrial revolution in europe so actually okay uh, after a little bit technical difficulties we're back um and okay. so i was mentioning earlier uh before the industrial revolution that happened in england uh in the early 1800s european manufacturers didn't have any uh, cost advantage to the chinese manufacturers because you know china yeah could produce everything it needs. It didn't need goods that was shipped over long distance, you know, all the way from England. Uh, yeah. It may need some spice from the Spice Islands, but that, that's about it. Well, um, it wasn't so much a question of need, I feel like. Um, it was more, okay, we, we, want, we want this, we want that, we want the other thing, but we don't need it for our economic development or you know, for, for the purposes of the ruling Qing power or anything like that. So, um, and, and even with silver, as I said, they always needed more silver because it was the basis of their currency, uh, their yeah, whole economy. Because, uh, because what happened was uh, during Ming Dynasty, uh, you know, China was the first to invent paper. And and China was all, all also the first to be on paper based currency, uh, but during the Yuan Dynasty and Ming Dynasty, the the Chinese uh, imperial government got a little bit crazy with with money printing, <laughs> so they caused hyperinflation, and what happened was the the paper currency collapsed. The country went back to metal based uh, system. Yeah. And, and silver became the currency of choice, but but China didn't have produce enough silver because at this time, as I mentioned, China was the world's largest economy and growing, and the 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 silver mine in China was just not enough, cannot keep up with the demand for new currency. So so they had to import a lot of silver uh, from abroad. So initially yeah. it was. Uh, the discovery of silver mine in Japan, so that helped. And then later, when the Spanish uh, conquered, took over Americas, they discovered silver mine in uh, Bolivia and Mexico and Peru. 
and then that that actually uh, it served the, the trade with China, the, the silver flow from Americas that actually allowed uh, financial stability of the Spanish colonies, enable Spanish yeah. to stay in in the Americas. Uh, I think um, well, they did a study I- that showed. Fifty percent of the silver produced in the Americas since the Spanish colonization ended up in China. You know, from from fifteen hundreds all the way to eighteen hundreds, up to half of the silver producing in New World ended up shipping to China because uh, the Spanish they um they wanted to trade with China, but they weren't allowed. Uh, because they were, you know, also doing some pillaging. <laughs> so so they weren't allowed to trade directly on Chinese mainland. What they did is that they set up a, a, a new trading post in Manila in the Philippines, and they welcomed the Chinese merchants who yeah. ran the blockade to come to the Philippines to trade. And so that's how the silver from the Americas ended up going to the Chinese mainland. And then the Chinese goods, like tea and, and, and porcelain and silk flew to, you know, the, the, the Spanish colonies and back to Europe. Yeah. Uh, this is this is something that I uh, we always hear when you're studying like that time, that Chinese society, the main the main source of adventurism was in Chinese society was always the merchants. Um, you know, up until very recently, that you know, a Chinese a Chinese merchant would go anywhere. You know, even you know, like say, um, a lot of um, a lot of merchants from East China came. To, you know, West China, like you know, what's now Yunnan, Guizhou, places like this, was considered to be like this wild west, like this scary place. But in in Western China, you had this incredible uh, amount of silver. Like uh, Yunnan, until pretty recently, was one of the main domestic sources for silver in China. In fact, in the Ming and the Qing dynasty, uh, one of the biggest drivers for development of Yunnan, Yunnan being the province for people not familiar Yunnan is a province to the southwest of China, in the southwest corner. It, to the north, it borders Tibet. Uh, to the to the southwest, it borders Myanmar, and southeast, it borders Vietnam and Laos. And, and it has been a borderland region. But what actually drove the development of Yunnan and also more migration of Han Chinese from interior China to Yunnan was mining. Was mining yeah. like as you mentioned with silver, silver, tin, uh, and, copper. And yes, silver, tin, copper. They were like the main economic stay of Yunnan. a lot of gold. Um, yes. at, at one time there was a lot of jade as well. Um, Yunnan has long since been mined out of jade. So yeah. now, now the Chinese jade trade relies on um, Xinjiang. For mutton yeah. fat, jade, Myanmar, and and Myanmar, exactly the same the same areas we're talking about when we talk about the opium trade. Yeah. Um, so and the so two, let's the get two, back to the drug. <laughs> yeah. Let's get let's as, get back as, to the as as I was going to say, the two the two trades are really closely linked together, especially um, in that time period that you're going to get to eventually. 
Yes. Um, so, so you know, like Yunnan was, uh, like I mentioned, was a border town, and and it was um, the the Han Chinese migration to Yunnan really started in the Ming Dynasty. Uh, you know, originally was settled by soldier farmers, and then yeah. then the miners. It's the people like a lot of single bachelor men who you know couldn't <laughs> find better prospects in inner China. They came to Yunnan to work as miners, and and many many of them then settled, marry local women, and form yeah. like new communities. Yeah. In 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 one case, um, you've got Teng Chong in Baoshan Prefecture. That was the the first significant amounts of, and that that's like a um you know that's been a center of Han and Hui people in Yunnan since I think the fifteen hundreds. Uh, eventually, yeah, since, um, since the Kublai Khan, well, the Hui, the most Hui Muslims have been in Yunnan since the Kublai Khan's conquest of Yunnan. Yeah, right? the, the, um, they, the, the central a lot of Central Asian Muslims came with a Mongol army and they settled in. Especially when the Mongols privileged them over, uh, you know, the locals and also Han Chinese. Uh, the in fact, the first governor of Yunnan during the Mongol rule was uh, was, uh, was a Central Asian Muslim who, who exactly yeah. came from uh, Bukhara, Bukhara, which is today's uh, Uzbekistan, right? Yeah, and and he he founded a long like he he and his line kind of rule over a uh, large part of Yunnan. And, and in fact, when the Ming that was, dynasty... That was, that was the kingdom of Dali. The previous kingdom of Dali got rolled by the, the Mongols. By the Mongols. And, yes, they put, by the... and they put that guy's dynasty... In, and that, they stayed in power until the 1700s or something like they, that. N- oh, no, no, they didn't. They stayed in power until the Ming dynasty overthrew the Mongols. So, okay. so, 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 so the Mongols came and they... Uh, uh, so the Mong Yunnan was actually one of the last Mongol held out in China yeah. uh, because, you know, Ming dynasty very soon took over most of the Chinese heartland um, and then the the Mongol emperor, the last Mongol emperor, uh, fled Beijing into Inner Mongolia, and then but the, in the other corner of China that was still ruled by the Mongols was Yunnan because it was so remote, and and yeah. so so eventually the Ming Dynasty sent in troops into Yunnan to to conquer this last whole Mongol holdout, and in in doing so, so they destroyed. Um, um, uh, it, like they captured one of the descendants of this uh, Muslim, the, the 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 Muslim governor of Yunnan, and and this is a boy by the name later giving the name Zheng He, right? He was castrated, sent into palace as a eunuch, and eventually he became a, a confidant of the the Ming prince, who would later become the Ming emperor, and then the the Ming emperor would send his confidant Zheng He as the admiral. Yeah, Indian treasure fleet all over, um, all over Indian Ocean, right, all the way to Africa. Yeah, yeah. but that—that's that's a different. That's a different story. Zing. We digress a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> just a little. This yeah. Is kind of, yeah, because Yunnan is just has a fascinating history. But let's get back to the drugs. Yeah, <laughs> this is a drug episode. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's our starting point anyway. The way it works. Um, yeah. Yeah. As as I was going to say. Um, Chen Chen Long, 
Okay, so basically we we were at like about uh seventeen sixty seven. Um, the the import of opium from by the British East India Company, which was like the commercial arm of the British Empire, um, it got up to two thousand chests of an o- opium a year by seventeen sixty seven. Uh, a few decades later, in seventeen ninety three, they 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 had a monopoly. Like they were the only ones who were allowed to sell. So, the British. I, I, I just want to interject for a second because opium became the biggest money maker of of, of the British China trade. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you in like um, I remember when studying world history in U.S. in high school. You know, we were still taught. One of the reason, you know, supposedly the reason the Europeans uh, demand of China is to China, because China's market was closed. So, so, so really, the the European war, one of the reason for European war against free China trade, was open, yeah, yeah, free trade. But what they really meant free trade is free trade of opium because that was the biggest goods that British well, were selling that's, into China. That's, that's the nice that's the nice thing that like as as we discussed before like there wasn't that much that china needed or wanted from the british at that point and that's the yeah. really nice thing about addictive drugs like tobacco and opium is once it, it, to this day like you know you you, you have a captive you have market the, you have a you have a captive audience <laughs> the product the product creates its own market yeah, by by virtue of the fact that it is fit, like both drugs are physically addictive. Like once you have them, you need them, and if you don't yep. get them, like you can get sick and die. Like uh, not yep. not from tobacco so much, but like opium, opium, <laughs> opium, opium withdrawals can kill people. Like yeah. the same as alcohol. Um, yep. like the body, the body uh, goes through fine. physiological changes. And once once you have that habit, if you don't keep on getting that drug, the changes that your body makes can can kill the body. So yeah, it's a great way to create a market, basically. Yeah, and um, the, the the British were very good at what they were doing because they're they're they have all these embedded like uh, they uh, they embedded themselves with the Chinese local Chinese dealers, uh, the distributors, but they also learn to grease the wheel by bribing all the Qing dynasty officials to turn the other way because officially the drug opium is still banned uh, you know yeah. it's, it's uh, but even the opium consumption is 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 you know have to be supposedly have to be strictly regulated but in effect on the ground because British was bribing all these officials on the local level to look the other way, you know, opium consumption yeah. and opium smuggling became rampant. And and that that led to Qianlong uh, Emperor. He banned opium completely in 1799. He said, "No more, no more uh, medicinal licenses." nothing because that that was the way that was one of the big ways that the british got around the ban was basically um the earlier edict against opium had that exception um under license for use as medicine and they they basically that's how they got around the ban of smoking or selling opium was 
oh yeah, yeah, it's all for medicine, you know, like we we and then you know that they would just bribe some local official to issue a license to to be like a, a you know a medicine selling company or whatever. And so yeah. that that got so out of hand, as you said, that by 1799, Qianlong Emperor said, nah, it's no, we don't no need people. opium as a medicine. No more fucking opium. We're done. Like, yeah. no. And, and basically, he tried to just stop it completely because, yeah. as you say, it became such a huge problem. Um, yeah, you got to the point yeah, where... Um, like even the army, the people in the the banner army, the the Manchu army bannermen were all smoking opium. <laughs> you know, people joke that they carry two guns, right? They carry a a, a a musket, but they also carry a pipe, opium pipe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is like this is the you know, we we get to the start of the nineteenth century now, and yep. now um, this is where we get morphine. Like morphine was um, discovered in 1803, as as so many of these stories go, this started with a German chemist. He got he got opium paste, he dissolved it in acid, and then he neutralized it with a with a basic solution, ammonia, and this the leftover product was the the alkaloid, the um, which is you know, morphine. And this is this is really funny that like at the time people thought oh you know opium was this dirty drug that will kill you, but morphine is is really reliable. It lasts for longer because it's really pure. It's more safe. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> so, safe. And this is this is the history of um, opioids, like you know drugs derived from opium. That every time they come up with a new one. They go, oh, now, now, you know, because they, they make them stronger. Um, they go, oh, this is more reliable. We could more reliably measure a dose. Um, it, it's safer because there's no more guesswork involved, you know, now. But every time, you know, you go from like opium paste to morphine to heroin to um, what's our uh, diamorphine? No, no, that's heroin. Sorry. Um, yeah, so morphine, diamorphine. So like heroin is just like a a further refining of morphine. Um, and this is just the big history of um, opioid drugs, really. Like they keep on making more refined versions. And every time they think, oh, this is going to solve all of the problems that we have with, you know, getting opium paste, rolling it into a ball and smoking it with tobacco from a pipe. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, and this is also around the time that the Americans started getting in on um, the opium trade. Yes. Uh, there was in a... Fact, um, uh, in an fact, American... the, the, the Americans, you know, for in the early, uh, when the uh, United States achieved its, its independence, uh, one of the biggest uh, urgent tasks was to find a new market because it was blockaded by British <laughs> from the British Commonwealth uh, from the British Empire uh, uh, trade network. So, so they, you know, there's a solution was to trade with China because China was still then the world's largest market, and and United States actually tried all different tried to sell all different goods to China. First, they tried ginseng. 
because ginseng grows in the wilds in the United States, mm. and, and they were grow, uh, sending tons of them over to China because, again, ginseng is valued as uh, Chinese medicine. But what happened was the U.S., they sent so much ginseng that depressed the uh, price of ginseng, and it became not worthwhile to ship it all, all the way across Pacific. So then yeah. they tried, um, like other pelts and the, the the fur seal pelts and they actually ran <laughs> it so they would go to the trade american traders they would go to pacific northwest right and and buy up uh buy up other pelts in the area and then then ship it across pacific to china it, it, it caused a, such a disruption to the other i mean by the time the other population in Northwest, uh, Pacific Northwest, almost got wiped out at this point, and mm. and they were and then they moved to first seals. They were uh, sending in like four million four seal pelts over to China, like with like either annually or within a couple of years. Yeah. So that greatly reduced the seal population in South Americas, uh, and uh, you know. And and one of the one of the um, one of the, the the stopping points, one of the uh, counting ground was Falkland Island, right? So that that you know, Brit- U.S. actually got into some kind of uh, claim with the, the British over <laughs> Falkland Island <laughs> because the, that was one of the, the one of the places ships stopped to hunt on seals for sell uh, for selling to China, and then. Um, they after they they're run, running out of utters and, and and the seals they they went to hawaii and they start cutting down sandalwood forest to ship all the sandalwood yeah. and that also started kind of the european colonization of hawaii that's when all the u.s businessmen and british businessmen start moving to hawaii uh starting their plantations and then uh and then you know when they pretty much cost like uh, environmental depredation everywhere, uh, they finally decided. You know what? The British is doing well with opium. Let's try that, and <laughs> and they they found a reliable part. But but the British monopolized the opium in India, right? Because that was a, one of the main growing regions of opium. Was well, the British? Well, yeah. um, that's that's the thing. The the British India Company had the the monopoly on um, Indian. The British East India Company had the monopoly on opium from India from, uh, yeah, no, 17, 1793, okay? Yeah. Well, um, the time the was, was, yeah, but basically. The, the, other, the other center of opium production at that time was Turkey. And yes. in that case as well, the British had the British Levant Company and they they also had a monopoly on the opium that was being produced in Turkey as well. So you had the British East India Company and the British Levant Company, and between them, they basically controlled, at that time, they controlled the world um, opium trade. Yeah. And, and, all, and all, the, all the Americans, sorry, all the Americans yeah. who, they had to get their opium from the Brits and it's funny that you mentioned the fur trade because, um, the, you know, the Astors of New York City, that you know, the Astor family, they're, they're very rich and influential even today. Their, their family fortune started with fur trading and opium smuggling in 1816. Oh, yeah. 
almost most of the the old money in U.S. All the New England money elite, they all made their money in China trade, aka opium smuggling. <laughs> and, well, and you know we're we're talking about like the Forbes family, right? Yeah, uh, you know the Astors. Yeah, the, the the and and uh, and then we have um, who, by the way, John Kerry is related to. <laughs> oh. so, uh, and then and then we have um, uh, we have the Roosevelts, you know, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt's grandfather, Warren Delano. Well, FDR, the D in FDR is Delano. It's Delano, you know, that, yeah. Yeah, that's from from uh, the last name of uh, um, FDR's maternal grandparent, uh, grandfather, uh, William Delano. And Delano went to, um, or Warren Delano, uh, I, I need to check. <laughs> but the, 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 they, they all got started in opium smuggling to China. That's how the, 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 how that's how the, the seed money for American industrial revolution was made it was made in the opium money yeah. um, and, and they the Americans work with a work with a Chinese merchant uh, at the time uh, uh, this 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 guy who is known you uh, covered him before yes Ho Kwa. he was the richest Ho-Kwa. man in the world at that time yeah Hokwa yes. yeah Hokwa yeah Hokwa was so rich he he was, you know, everyone knows Rothschild, right? The the, the, the Jewish banking family who dominated banking industry in Europe. But he was, at the time, Hokwa uh, in 1830s, he, his net worth is five times that of Nathaniel Rothschild of England. Yeah. Um, that's how wealthy he is. He was, so he, uh, so he, he thought, okay, well, uh, you know, the British are making a killing in opium. I want to get into that. So he worked with Americans because uh, at this time, um, the United States, uh, this the war. OK, so the war of 1812 broke out with the British. Right. So so the, the, all the American merchant ship, ships in in China are kind of stuck because they can't <laughs> they can't go back to the East Coast because of the British blockade. Um, so so Hokwa came up with a solution for them. It's like, look, you know, rather than you going back and forth between U.S. and 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 China, here, let me give you some money. You can take the money and go to Turkey and get some Turkish opium, and I will make sure you, you can get your ships through the custom. Um, and hope yeah. um, I, w- I was wrong on that. The British didn't have a monopoly on Turkey. They just controlled uh, the the Levant Company owned something like fifty yeah. percent. But there was yeah. still yeah. there was still plenty of leftover for the Americans and others to buy and sell yeah. themselves. Yes. Yes, because at that time it was under Ottoman Empire, right? And then the, the Americans found an opening, so they went to Turkey, uh, you know, with the Chinese seed money about <laughs> from Hokwa, uh, and then they they will because they 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 have Hokwa. The reason we work with the Americans because Hokwa didn't have his own fleet, um, you know, whereas Americans they can go wherever. Uh, wherever in the in the world and before the war with the british 
Americans could could even sell to London to sell to London directly. So so Hokwa Hokwa would do is he would have the American traders to carry his tea on consignment <laughs> to go ship to England to sell directly to the British market. You know, bypass the the British India monopoly. Um, and then uh, you know, during the eighteen war of eighteen twelve, the war between U.S. and, and Britain. Uh, Hokwa says, okay, 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 we have to figure out another gig. Then he gave Americans the, the, the money to go to Turkey to buy opium and then bring it back to Canton or Guangzhou, right? And and, and Hokwa would do yeah. things because at the time, Guangzhou experienced famine. So the the government, the, the Qing government, were local government in Guangzhou were actually encouraging foreign merchants to bring, uh, to import rice from abroad, right? So, so, so Hokwa would like have the Americans to have ship rice into Guangzhou, which then the, the American ships will be waved through. But on the bottom bunk of the ship, they, w- they will store opium, <laughs> right? So, so within the is... ship, yeah, go ahead. I wanted go to ahead. mention this. You, you, you mentioned the link between American uh, merchants and Hokwa and Turkey. There's two particular Americans who who were involved in that trade. You had a guy called uh, John Cushing. Um, yes. He worked for uh, he worked for the James and Thomas H. Perkins Company. They were from Boston. They yep. they got their he got his wealth from from um, moving Turkish opium to uh, Guangzhou from to Canton. Yep. And that was also true for John Jacob Astor, the big, um, you know, the the patriarch of the Astor family. He yeah. had a company called the American Fur Company. They they bought like you know tons and tons of Turkish opium, and then they yeah. smuggled it uh, into again into Canton. Um, but later on, uh, Astor got out of. Um, opium selling opium to china and he just he just he found it easier i suppose to just sell directly to the english but yeah you've you've got um i think at first at first the americans who got into the opium trade they would buy from the british and then they would smuggle it into china but then Mm -hmm. like into the 1810s you had cushing and astor who went Hang on, this is this is a much more profitable way to do things. Yeah, um, and also because the eighteen twelve we go war, from Turkey. Yeah, also because eighteen twelve yeah. the war between between U.S. and 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 Britain, so they couldn't go dock in the British ports anymore. <laughs> so so that's when yeah. they got into business with Hokwa, um, and 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 that's, both that's these cool. families have very close tie with Hokwa. You know, they they became. Kind of like yeah. basically Oqua's proxies to to <laughs> to to do the tea tea opium trade, yeah, tea for opium. Well, well, Cushing Cushing started in eighteen twelve, so I guess at first, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, Boston, like there was a lot of commercial links between Boston and England, and then uh, eighteen twelve happened, and Cushing yep. would have had to go. Well, that's you know that's not going to work anymore. The the Charles Cabo way of buying from the Brits and selling to the Chinese isn't going to work anymore. Oh, okay, I'll go from the Turkish to the Chinese. 
with um, Chinese venture capital, and and the yep. same for John Jacob Astor as well. Yep. yep. <laughs> and same same uh, for John Forbes and uh, yeah, which who started the Forbes Fortune. Um, yeah. And and Delano, yeah. Yep. So this is like, you know, this is a who's who of um, uh, East Coast U.S. dynastic yeah. wealth. Yes, yes. Um, and and, and o- so, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's, uh, I'm sorry, not <laughs> William Delano, Warren Delano. That's the grandfather of, uh, of uh, FDR. He made, he made his fortune from smuggling opium to Guangzhou. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and FDR owe a lot to his grandfather because you know FDR he didn't have a real job before he became president <laughs> he, he he relied basically on this dynastic opium wealth to put himself yeah. in presidency he was he was <laughs> just he was just like an adventurer basically right yeah yeah he he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and that silver spoon was financed by originally the opium well um yeah and, and yeah yeah and in fact fdr they through his grandpa uh warren delano they have a large mansion in the victoria peak in hong kong uh, oh yes, yeah you a, yes we talked about long, that before they have a long ties but but anyway, we kind of sidetrack and tan- went tangent. Let's get back to the drugs. <laughs> Let's get back to yeah. the drugs. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, basically, um, like, the reason why we're having to go through China is this is really a history of how how northern Myanmar became so big yeah. on um, opium production, basically. Yeah. But now, prior to opium war, right, the most... Uh, major production of opium is either from British India or from Turkey. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean that, that main source, right? Shipping by either by British and Americans into China. Sometimes, sometimes people mention that there was already, like, there was there was opium in northern Myanmar in Myanmar from like you know the seventeen hundreds at least, and of course it was known to the Chinese pharmacopoeia. So. It wasn't a completely new thing in Myanmar or China before the 1700s and 1800s. What those, uh, what the what the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British brought with you, with them was, you know, like this this mat this flooding the the country with just tons and tons and tons of of this stuff like previously opium was really like a uh, a medicinal plant and it wasn't market right before like uh, as i mentioned opium you cannot because you cannot take in large quantities orally it will kill you so so before before the the opium production if any that exists in north northern myanmar it was very small scale it's like it's like farmers; they they will they will plant rice, but they maybe have some patch of opium on the side to make a little bit, uh, like extra cash income. But it wasn't, uh, like it wasn't like a major or staple crop in the region. Well, um, see the thing the thing with Chinese medicine is like it's all it's all based on um like at least you know your herbal medicines. 
there's actually tiers of safety and usefulness in Chinese medicine. And the thing about opium was it was part of the Chinese pharmacopoeia. However, it was in that most dangerous and sparingly used. So yes. some some Chinese medicinal plants, you'll find them growing everywhere. They're really commonly grown, really commonly used because they're more broadly useful for one thing and for another thing, their physiological effects, they they do less harm. Like, you know, there's some plants that you can't really overdose on. Like, so, say cannabis, like at one point, cannabis was in that category of the safest of um, Chinese medicinal drugs. But opium, cannabis, cannabis basically became uh, very very much uh, um, unpopular for different reasons later on. But opium in the Chinese pharmacopoeia was always that really, it was seen as being a dangerous drug. It was really, yeah. its uses weren't that um, that wide. It wasn't yeah. that commonly used yes. um, in that it wasn't a tonic or something like that. It was like, if someone has severe pain, like, yeah, what happened? And, what the British did was they, uh, you know, start to farm it on an industrial scale. They made the price affordable to to everyone. the working class, people. and and in 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 doing so, it created a huge market, right? And and and, and like I think the some according to some European missionary uh, accounts, some parts of China, they they think somewhere from like a third to like 50% of the adult male population was addicted. Was smoking, yeah. yeah. And that's um, a huge, huge number. And that's why also why it's a hugely lucrative trade. When you have, like, you are selling into the world's largest economy yeah. <laughs> with, with this huge captive market, you yeah. know, who are addicted to your goods i mean it's it was that that's why the british would was willing to go to war for it i mm. mean it was so good for them yeah and, exactly yeah. exactly um okay so let's let's bring it closer to myanmar <laughs> yeah, this is this, we're, we're moving in this direction slowly okay. um that Okay, so uh, 18, 1830, basically, Jardine Matheson um, took over from the British East India Company, okay? So yes, at, this, yes. at this time, um, the British East India Company was no longer, like, no longer had an absolute monopoly. But it that was a time when, uh, so, so initially, British East India Company had a monopoly on all the trade, including yeah. opium trade to China. But by by uh, early eighteen hundred, they they lost the monopoly, and and even before that, they were kind of being out um, out competed by these so called country traders, uh, like the Jardine Matheson, and and the William Jardine is an interesting case because he started as a doctor for the uh, East India Company, and as a doctor, as a staff, he was entitled on. British East India Company's uh, ships, he was entitled to have 
a, 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 a space, a storage space for himself, and he used that storage space, you know, for, for his consignment of opium to ship he to just China. Packed it full of drugs, yeah. Yeah, that's how he accrued his uh, initial capital is is by his using his position within British East India Company, and, that's... and then. Then he started off on his own, forming his own trading company. And after the British, especially after the British East India Company monopoly uh, kind of expired, he yeah. he got into a big time. Like Jardine, he was he uh, was well positioned. He he actually got the um, opium uh, monopoly, or basically the opium trade from India directly from the British East India Company. Because he, yeah. he, he was already tied into the British East India Company. So, yes. as you say, like, yeah, he started off with them. So he was he was in exactly the right spot. Um, yeah. And also, the, at the time, um, he became... He, he was actually one of the chief uh, uh, proponent for the Opium War. Because at yeah. the time, there were few divided opinion in the British Parliament. Like, should we really go to war for selling drugs right there's there's still some uh, some like uh hang ringing among like the the uh kind of the, 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 the liberals of the time yeah yeah it's like oh should we really but 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 jardine uh william jardine he went he traveled back to london he bought up all this newspaper you know like having all this newspaper print <laughs> Printing like pro war story like against China like this is a very mod. That's why Opium War is a very modern war. It's a very modern story. He like this is only this is basically a drug lord slash oligarch went back to London, you know, spread his money, uh, you know, buying up all his this media, and then wage a media campaign for war and, yeah. and, and, and all kind of bogus reasons. Oh, like yeah, we are. The, the British honor is being insulted in China. You know, they, they call us barbarians. How, how intolerable. Yeah. Right? They, um, around that time, the- around that time, the British made their first um, attempts at um, actual um, diplomacy with uh, Qianlong. Um, and yeah, basically. Oh, that's was- in 17. 17- 90s yeah that's yeah, in 1790. that was that was a bit earlier then yeah um yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but from what what i can tell at that time that was when the british first started to get the idea you know maybe maybe china isn't isn't so strong internally you know yeah. maybe maybe there's a situation that we can take advantage of here yeah, in fact, Lord McCanney, the 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 British nobleman who headed the the mission to see the Channel Emperor in 1790s, he said uh, he made a comparison. He said China is this crazy old man of war, right? Uh, when you have a capable captain like Channel Emperor at the helm, they could steer steer away from all the perilous rocks. But when you know you have someone less capable, it's just gonna smash itself into pieces and in dangerous waters. And yeah. and so he he actually traveled through the the Chinese countryside. This is at the latter stage of Qianlong's reign. So a lot yeah, of yeah, Qianlong Qianlong died in seventeen ninety nine. Yeah, because Qianlong ruled a long time. He ruled like sixty years. Uh, you know, he he yeah. abdicated 
eventually because sixty one years. Yeah, because his um his uh, grandfather Kangxi Emperor ruled over sixty years, and he's like, okay, well, um, I I don't want to exceed my the 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 time. Yeah, my grandfather he, he was didn't at hell. Yeah, he he thought that he thought that he would be showing disrespect to Kangxi yeah. Emperor if he cho- yeah. you know um because he he would have exceeded him if he'd stayed as emperor until uh he died in 1799 yep. he would have exceeded so, yeah. his grandpa by 3 years no so out of respect for his grandfather the Kangxi Emperor he abdicated yeah. the favor of his son and he became kind of like the power behind the throne so to speak and uh and then but the but uh just a side note since we went on so many tangents already on the mccarney <laughs> to to china the the common yeah. conventional system is that you know china missed its chance to kind of welcome the european trade opening up to european ideas science and and really miss the chance to modernize with the McCartney mission. But I have to point out to people, you you are looking back at this with like hindsight, 2020 hindsight. Back in 1790s, back in 1795, 1798, that was 50 years before the Opium War. And it's also before the start of British Industrial Revolution, right? Because the, the yeah. Industrial Revolution was the, the really uh, game changer that tipped the balance of, you know, between, between the industrialized West and China. Before the industrialization, China was the, still the largest economy in the world. And, 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 and well, from position of Qianlong, he's right. He doesn't have any need. He doesn't need like British, he doesn't have any need for it's, British manufacturing. He was doing the British it's, it's a favor, really, granting them yeah, free exactly. And 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 it's, it was well known that that even at that time, you know, the what British most profitable part of the British trade was bringing opium to China. I mean, like like there's no reason for Channel to show respect to the British envoy at that point because. Uh, yeah. You know, at, at that point, the British really did not have a decisive leg up over China because, you know, as I mentioned, the, the Industrial Revolution hasn't started yet. You know, 50 years is a long time. You know, by Opium War, yes. By that time, British already completed the industri- Industrial Revolution. There was a huge gap between the British and, and China. But in 1795, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That was that was really that was really the start of when the British went from being just another like commercially based European power to being Great Britain. Um, And it it all happened, as you said, in that fifty years, they went from just another player to the big fish in the big pond. Because before um, that, so really... you know, China had, like, because we're told everything from, like, an Anglo perspective. Because before that, China had deal, dealt with Europeans. You know, China had been trading with the Portuguese oh, totally. for hundreds of years, right? Since, and Dutch. And, 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 and yeah, since the 1600s, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the British yeah. is not the old, 
like the 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 channel actually receive also receives the Dutch embassy, the Russian embassy. So so the the Chinese have been dealing with Europeans by this by in seventeen ninety five with with the Europeans for hundreds of years. And and from that their perspective, British just another it's just just another one. <laughs> it's like they there's nothing fundamentally different from Channel's perspective that set aside the British from the Dutch, from the Portuguese, from the Spanish, from the Russians. And mm. and but yeah, because because Channel couldn't tell the future. You know, he couldn't he couldn't have possibly know what would happen in the next fifty years with the Industrial Revolution in, in England. But anyway, so that that's our well, tangent. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we get to uh, 1852. Like, we'll, we'll move away from China at this point. We get to 1852. Okay, so, so this is um, after... So 1862, this is already after the two Opium Wars, right? So Opium War was fought in... 18, 18, 18, 18, 1852. This is between the Opium okay. Wars. Between the Opium Wars. So, so um, the first Opium War we, we, was fought between 1839 to 1841 or 42 i don't remember but but so 1841 yeah so 1852 is 1841 is when hong kong went to the brits as well that was part of the opium war concession that was the first first opium war so so 1852 is a full 10 years after the after the first opium war it's also right around the time when Taiping Rebellion was going to break out in a major way. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, 1852 is when the British kind of started moving in on, as it was called at the time, Burma. Now, the, that was the name that the British called it, Burma. Um, this is after the, the name of the majority ethnic group at the time, the Burma people, it's still the ethnic majority group of Myanmar, um, but the British said, okay, well, we'll just name it after the name of the people who we're dealing with, the Burma people. That's that's when they started um, pushing a lot of opium, like industrial quantities of opium into Burma. This was coming from India again, you know, it was coming from the same places as the opium they were pushing into China. Um, yeah, well, just just a little bit more background. By 1850s, you know, British already consolidated their control in India, right? And and they and now they're pushing against the border of Myanmar yeah. um, or the Burmese Empire because uh, the, the, the 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 British in the, around the time of the Opium War and immediate afterward, you know, they also wanted to get into the tea trade. So it was not enough that they were selling um, opiums to China to get silver, but now they also wanted to produce their own tea. So they they actually sending uh, botanic spies into China to gather like tea tea plant seeds, uh, and they brought some Chinese tea workers to India. And they found out um, that the area most suitable for tea plantation is northeast India in Assam. So we're already on the yeah. pushing against the border of Myanmar there. And so, so, so British went there. Uh, you know, they already conquered that region like a, you know, tens of years, like a few decades earlier. 
the, and then they then they, they brought these Chinese tea workers to to plant teas in Assam. So that's the start of like the Indian tea production, uh, the the tea plantation of Assam. And then uh, because so that and and because that area borders Myanmar, right? Myanmar actually the Burmese Empire actually went into. Uh, <laughs> launched several expeditions into that area earlier. So now the British territorial, ter- territorially, they're butting heads against the Burmese Empire. And then that resulted when clash and they resulted in the, the Anglo-Burmese War, right? Okay, I'm done. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that's 1852 um, that that really started. Um, okay, so 1856, you had the Second Opium War, um, and that's and that's when opium became uh, legal. You know, like that was that was one of the things that. Um, that's one of the demands of the British yeah. because because the first yeah. it, opium war se- resulted. One of the demands for the British was for China to legalize opium trade, but but China refused uh, to budge on that issue. So, so British felt they didn't get opium. Everything. Opium had been outlawed in seventeen ninety nine by Jia Qing. and then yeah. um, in hang on a second. Uh, so I mean, uh, first, I mean, the, the opium ban was was uh, officially announced. Uh, oh, yeah, the uh, there was a, a Chinese. Um, oh, in eighteen thirty nine. There were several yeah. opium bans, right? So there was first during the reign of Yongzhen Emperor, and then in Qianlong Emperor's reign, and then again after in Qianlong Emperor's son, Jia Qing, and then Dao Guang Emperor yeah, issued issue even more another ban, and that that the, the, that, that, that was banned by Dao Guang Emperor that in 1830s. That's what triggered the, the opium war, right? When, when, when Dao Guang Emperor sent the well, commissioner Lin Zexu to Guangzhou to, to, to actually enforce, <laughs> actually enforce a ban. And that's what Yeah, the, the law, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you say, that was in, in uh, March 18, uh, 1839. Yeah. Uh, the so commissioner what... from the imperial court, he, he basically, he was enforcing the law. He went there and he said, look, you're going to have to surrender all of your opium because it's illegal and you know it's illegal and here you are flouting the law. You're doing business in our country. You have to surrender all of your opium because if we if we say to you destroy it, you're just going to hide it somewhere and then you're going to sell it later on. Yeah. We're going to seize it and destroy it ourselves. Yeah. And in response to him enforcing the law, the British sent warships to... Yeah to Canton, and that's where the first opium war started from, yeah. the Chinese enforcing their own laws. Yeah. And, and the <laughs> Which result is... of the first opium war, the British, one of the terms British you wanted was fully legalization of opium trade in China, but, but British didn't get that, you know. Instead, what they get is basically Until... a total, total um, lapse in the enforcement of the law. So, like, you know, opium trade was rampant, but it was still technically illegal. But but British launched a second opium war to get what they want, which is In actually legal. Yeah. yeah, actually legally <laughs> allow opium yeah. trade as that well. Was, also. That was 
that was one that was one of the concessions after the second opium war i mean yes. the french got in on the party then as well yep yeah, uh, because don't, French, don't forget by, the French. French by that time they already moved into Vietnam, so now they have a base to yeah Vietnam to, exactly yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Now Some, they have sometimes their... here you find you find coinage from uh, French Indochina. I mean, it's it's all fake. I mean, originally the currency was real. It's fake currency now, but you get like all these historical coins from the 1800s being sold in the markets here. And at first I was like French Indochina. This is, this is like 10 years ago when I first came here. I didn't know any of the history. And that's one oh, of the you things mean the, that those were sold in Yunnan where you live. Those currencies. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, um, rep- reproductions. Oh, I mean, right, right, very, right. very occasionally you find the genuine article, but, then if it's the genuine article, the people who are selling know what they have. Generally, if you're if you're looking to buy those kind of coins, you take a magnet with you. And if the magnet attracts the coins, you can go, okay, this is a modern reproduction. They use steel, uh, sil- uh, iron or like uh, something. They, they use an iron core and then they okay. put like a thin wash it's usually uh, iron and tin because then, you know, yeah. tin uh, or something that doesn't corrode so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, like, you can just go through the trays with your magnet. They don't like you doing that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I take a magnet to the oh. markets to try and find genuine coins, they, they don't like me doing that. Um, okay, that, well, that's a color anyway. for anecdote. Let, let's get back to our drug story. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so how I, opium got to northern Myanmar? So, so the British so, moved into Myanmar, right? And then, the, then 18, later they also... Yeah, go ahead. In 1852, in 1852, uh, the British moved into lower Burma. So, you know, like the area where oh, the Burma yeah. people really... Um, Really, yeah. um, really. Li- well, that's that's where their main uh, well, population. Well, okay, okay. So, so, for people who don't who are not familiar, uh, at the time before the British came, uh, the area of Myanmar is ruled by kind of the Burmese, in- the last Burmese Empire, right? Yeah, the Con- Empire- Con- dynasty. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. that was earlier. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So there the, was there the, was the, the dynasties the, the of Burmese, Burmese Empire is an empire, whereas it's it's ruled by. Uh, wrong by like the the Burmese majority, um, you know, the rule in southern yeah. capital in Rang- Rangoon, but it expanded north, right, into these uh, into the hill into the hills, uh, you know, conquering all these hill tribes, including all these. But that was much later. I'm sorry. That was that was more in the 1800s, like when they started moving into like. For example, Ra- what what is now Rakhine State or Shan or Kachin states, they were still largely independent. Well, well, but they they were, I mean, they were pu- they pushed into that those area northern Myanmar even during the Emperor Chandong's reign, right, in like seventeen hundred, because you know that's when that triggered the war between Qin China and Myanmar, right. 
like yeah, like because the Burmese Empire was expanding in all directions. It was very militaristic. It expanded north south. It went in, it destroyed the old Siam, the 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 first uh you know kingdom in Thailand. Um, uh, it, it took yeah. over that region, and then then you went north to push into what is now today's northern Myanmar, all the way against the, the up against the Chinese border. So so at the time that area of northern Myanmar and and southern Yunnan is is like I, we mentioned earlier, it's populated by different Thai-speaking people, the, the Jinpo people, uh, a whole patchwork of ethnicity. And, and on the local level, well, it's run by these local kingdoms where the, the, the kings will pledge allegiance to either the Chinese empire or the Burmese empire. Depends on which side gets stronger yeah. at the moment. And, and but, but, well, but at local level, you know, there's a lot of autonomy. These 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 kings rule their own kingdoms. Uh, but but what happened? They're, they're more is, like tributary powers. Yeah. 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 So what happened? They pay what tribute. Happened with the rise of the of the last Burmese dynasty, the last Burmese empire, was that they they start to aggressively to expand in this area to enforce their rules, and then they they started to uh, even push even against the area of Chinese influence. Uh, in, in Yunnan, and so that's when Channel Emperor uh, launched his, his his invasion of Myanmar, the, the, the war between between Qin Dynasty China and the Burmese Empire, and yeah, a, and that that kind of temporarily settled that border, uh, uh, you know, and 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 so so one half, you know, gets gets us allotted to you know what is now the. Get allotted to the Burmese Empire, the, the other parts that, that you know got reaffirmed as a, the Chinese uh, tributary, and uh, wh- and then wh- um, go ahead, go ahead. What I want, want to, to say that? is there's there's a huge difference between the Shan and the Kachin people. The Shan people were uh, agriculturalists in much the same way as the Han or other agricultural powers, they they supported large populations. They're they supported farming. kingdoms and principalities through yeah, rice cultivation. They were rice like the 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 Dai people, the Shan people, um may have even be the ones who introduced the Chinese, the Han or who became the Han to rice farming all those thousands of years ago. And so the Shan Dai areas were much more conducive to military expeditions than uh, the Kachin Jingpo people Ah, who were, they, they were, they were living in hill, hills, mountains, rainforests, um, they okay. they that, that, uh, that practice within. That makes sense because they practice. That makes sense because the the seventeen hundred war between uh, Qin Dynasty China and Burmese Empire was really over the Dai areas, like you said, the valleys yeah. where the well, rice are planted, and the, those those are the Sun you know, State and in Yunnan. Yes, that makes sense. And, and that's and that's a big difference in how the wars went. That like when when the um, when the Han were fighting against 
the Myanmar, uh, the Burmese and the Shan, they 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 all had the the same general idea of warfare and fighting, and they were organised in much the same way, except that obviously um, the Chinese side had more troops, more infrastructure, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, I so, have to correct you a second, Davi. Uh, so. So during the Qing okay. Dynasty war with Myanmar, it's just not it's not it's not just Han troops because there was the yeah yeah the, yeah the yeah, Manchu, yeah obviously there were Manchu troops and and yeah of back course the, time, the the Channel Emperor deployed uh, uh, troops all the way from uh, from Manchuria from Heilongjiang from, what is it, from all over the empire yeah but but, but, That's but many true. of them he sent from. Uh, the, the so-called the new Manchu. So these are the people who were conquered by the Manchus in northern Manchuria on what is today uh, inside uh, the Russian border, like like along the river, along the Amur River, right in the Amur River Valley. So these today will be yeah. the, 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 the called the Dawur people, Dawur people, the 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 Evenkis, the the oh uh, Evenks, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 and. Um, and uh, what's the other? Uh, I'm drawing a blank here, but, but but there's three. But anyway, so these people the, 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 from from far far northern Manchuria on the border of the yeah. Amur River, they were drafted by Channel Emperor to to fight in Myanmar uh, because they were hardy warriors, and and uh, and and actually the Burmese were in fear of them because they're 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 very good horse archers. Uh, but 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 mm. the problem is these. Far northern people, they come to really hot tropical jungle in Myanmar. Yeah. They die from disease. They drop like flies from just from the tropical disease. And that was, and that that, that was, was one of the biggest casualties of the Qing troops. Yeah, totally Rome. malaria. Oh, yeah, malaria. exactly. Yeah, oh, malaria. Um, so, so and that was so, and that was a big right. thing with the with the uh, fighting in uh, Kachin, Jingpo areas that they they lived in a totally different um, uh, ecosystem. Uh, they they didn't have the massive population that the rice farming uh, ethnic groups had, and so their their way of making war was much more like. What we would currently call uh, guerrilla warfare. Um, that individually they were stronger than, um, you know, like you know, your your Shan people or whoever else. So individually they were very strong, and they were accustomed to fighting in small skirmish groups, and they were accustomed to fighting against the Shan, against the Bama. So they were very, you know. That you make a raid with a small amount of warriors, kill a few people, melt away into the hills, into the jungle, and just rather than making these big blows that your mass armies are accustomed to making, they they would do more like a slow a slow bleed sort of style of warfare. So for my That's... American uh, audience. You know, think of Native Americans around the time of European arrival. You know that kind of kind of except except that there was no technology gap. You know, um, because yeah. the Kachin, the Kachin, as well as living in this manner, were also incredibly rich. 
because in their land, in Kachin State, there's uh, all the jade, all the rubies, all the emeralds, like just this unam- um, all, uh, lots of hardwood, lots of really valuable woods. Um, and that's still the case today. That um, And so they were incredibly wealthy. Well, so people, and whenever I they... Encourage people, I encourage people to take a look at a map of northern Myanmar and, 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 and also Yunnan. So, so in northern Myanmar, the largest, two largest states is Kachin State and the San State. The Kachin State is, is to the west of Yunnan. It's like this teardrop-shaped uh, that's just like poking through, like I, I, I'd say at the crown of Myanmar, right? And then the, 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 the San state is a little bit to the south of Kachin state. It's, it's uh, more to the east, right? And, and so, so if, you, if, you, if you use China's Yunnan province as reference, uh, Kachin state would be to the west of Yunnan, whereas the San state would be to the, more directly to the south of Yunnan. Is that, does that, is, yeah, is that, exactly. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, Go ahead. So that's 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 how um, that's how we you know if we want to go to Shan State, well, you know, we're not going anywhere now because there's like an incipient civil war going on in Myanmar. But if we want to go to um, Shan State from here in Yunnan in Dehong, we go directly south. If we want to go to Kachin State, we have to go uh, northwest to Baoshan Prefecture, and then from Baoshan Prefecture, we can cross over into Kachin State in Myanmar. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's as you say, you know, um, the, the geographical relation between the three places is much like that. And also Kachin State is getting further into the Himalaya foothills. Like you, you go to North um, Kachin State, and that's really getting into what you would call the Himalayas, as opposed to here, which is very much. I mean, we're still a thousand meters above sea level here, and that's at the the base of the valley floor. But it's not it's not anything like the altitude of large parts of Kachin State or anything like that. Yeah, the uh, area of northern Myanmar and. Uh also Yunnan is very geographically diverse and, yeah. and it, you have if you think about the Tibetan plateau and the Himalayas it kind of spill over into this area by through and cut across by different river, great rivers by like the Yangtze the Mekong the Salween River right they cut across into deep river valleys so, so this area, part of Southeast Asia, so I think some, some refer as Zumia. So this, there is a term, a new term called Zumia. This very mountainous region, uh, but that's, that has some very deep uh, river valleys where on the bottom, you know, you, you have the rice cultivations, but then, you know, you have uh, different people, you know, living as hunter-gatherers, you know, more up in the, in the, in the mountains. So, so it's very geographically, <coughs> ethnic, ethnic, linguistically diverse region. Yeah, um, the the Shan languages and the um, uh, Kachin languages are are nothing alike. They're not even from the same language group. Um, 
they're completely unrelated to each other. Yeah. And you have a lot of languages that are related to each other. Like you've got um, Burmese language, Shan language, Thai language are all part of the same language group. Kachin language is totally different. We really took a long arc of tangents. Oh so let's get back to the drugs. <laughs> like our, our drugs narrative. That's what ties everything together, right? This is so this is what we started off on. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I wanna yeah. I wanna get to that. Okay. So okay. So basically, um, Kachin, uh, basically the British uh, let me see. Uh, I need to work my way back to where I was before. <laughs> So, so basically, um, I got distracted. So as I said, you know, like uh, 18, 1850s, the British arrived in Lower Burma. So like, you know, like the Burma heartland um, in the next. Okay, so finally, we are finally getting to the meat of the our our investigation of, of this particular history, the history of opium and heroin in Southeast Asia. Uh, I, I I thank everyone for following us along on this journey. I hope it was interesting and entertaining for everyone. Uh, I know me and Davi did uh, had fun recording this. I just hope you had an equal amount of fun listening. So please comment, leave a comment, click like. Um, I'm going to have the, the in-depth historical part. Uh, be available for my for for on, for my patrons on my Patreon uh, website, uh, which is just go to www.patreon.com slash uh, what is this uh, slash silk and uh, as in Nancy and steel silk and steel uh, uh, and or just go to patreon.com and search silk. Uh, yeah, go search Carl's hour, search silk. It should be the first, um, first, uh, pace that pops up. So, uh, yeah. and, and that's, that's what happens for me. We, uh, where can people find you, Davide? Um, okay. So if people want to catch up with my, with my work from here in, uh, Southeast, uh, Yunnan in Southeast, Ch- uh, Southwest Yunnan, in Southwest China, I should say, uh, they can go over to patreon.com forward slash Southwest China. That's that's what Southwest China, one word, no abbreviation. Um, but yeah, I, I have hundreds of picture galleries, essays, videos. There's, there's no end of content over there. And if if your subscribers would like to learn more about this part of China, um, I can't. I can't think of a better source for modern day. Anyway, so yeah, I, I would strongly encourage them to head over to my Patreon and subscribe today. Yeah, uh, check out the Davides uh, Patreon site. Subscribe, um, and uh, next time when we have Davide back. We will talk about uh, the start of the CIA-financed drug trade (laughs) in northern Myanmar. The CIA was like Hans Brinker. They They had their thumbs in all kinds of schemes and plots. In Myanmar at that time, and uh, we'll we'll be going into a lot of that stuff uh, next time. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of uh, fascinating stuff. So again, thank, thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.